Well, it is good to be together today. Uh, it's a privilege for me to be with you and worship with you. Thank you, church, for all that uh, we are doing together at the International Mission Board. Uh, thank you, Pastor Ronnie and Angie, for your friendship over the years. Uh, thank you for your leadership. I told the pastor of the or the chairman of the pastor search committee last night that called uh, Pastor Ronnie uh, to First Baptist Church. I said, uh, you hit a home run out of the park when you called, uh, when God called Pastor Ronnie to come and serve as uh, the shepherd of this congregation. I know that to be the case because I've known him for over 20 years. What you see of Pastor Ronnie from this stage is Pastor Ronnie. He loves the Lord. He loves you. He loves the lost. He loves his wife. And what a beautiful partnership they have in ministry. And I tell you, if I was within an hour's drive of Clarksville, Tennessee, I'd be a member at First Baptist Church. Uh, I have enjoyed so much being with you this weekend. Uh, I would join not just because of your pastor, but primarily because of your pastor, but also seeing all this church is doing and all the plans that are unfolding uh, for the future has been such a great encouragement to me. I also know about your past and your faithfulness over many, many years to share the gospel, not only here, but through your IMB missionaries, supporting them so generously and sacrificially, I see what you are doing among the nations, and it is incredible. Thank you. Just this past year, we saw more than half a million people have the opportunity to hear the gospel through your IMB missionaries and their Baptist partners on the ground in more than 130 countries of the world. Uh, of those half a million people who heard the gospel, 176,000 professed faith in Jesus, and more than 100,000 of them followed up with baptism as believers. It was great to see worship start this morning with baptism. And, of course, that's the goal, the immediate goal for anyone who comes to faith to follow the example of Jesus, the command of Jesus, and to declare our belief and trust in Jesus to the world and to know that more than 100,000 people around the world did that this past year because of the investment that you made in sending missionaries, praying for missionaries and the lost among the nations, supporting them financially, and even as uh, we'll see this morning, sending volunteer teams out to serve alongside of them. We are encouraged greatly today by not just individuals coming to faith, but by new churches being planted. This past year, there were more than 22,000 new churches started overseas through your missionaries. So thank you, First Baptist Church. There's so much that you're doing. Your reach is far beyond what you would ever imagine. But from my vantage point, I'm able to see it. And today I want to say thank you. Thank you for leading the state of Tennessee and being one of the leaders in the entire Southern Baptist Convention in giving through the cooperative program to make this great mission force work. Your generous giving through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is a blessing. On behalf of 3,550 missionaries who are serving around the world, and there are 2,850 kids who are part of those missionary families, I want to express our deep gratitude for the partnership that we share with you and for your heart for the nations. What we are doing is so important. In fact, I remind our missionaries and our IMB team as often as I have the opportunity to speak to them 
you are doing the most important work in the universe. And I believe that it is. I believe that the ministry of First Baptist Church is the most important work in the universe. Why do I say that is the case? Well, we're going to turn our attention to a passage of Scripture this morning that helps us understand the ultimate end of what we are about, of what we are doing, and all that hangs in the balance. We're looking this morning together at Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to pick up with verse 1, read down through verse 15. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 15. Would you please stand with me this morning as I read and as we hear God's Word together? You're familiar with the book of Revelation. We know that by and large what we find contained therein is a description of visions that God gave to John, one who followed the Lord Jesus, who preached the gospel, one who was persecuted and even imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And in his prison cell, God began to reveal things to John in visions. Some of the things John saw helped him to understand what God was doing in the world back in his day. Some of the things John saw, I believe, are happening in the world in our day. And some of the things have yet to happen. We find pieces and parts of all of that described in this vision. Revelation 20 began in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. These are the martyred saints and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. There are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And here was sobriety, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of fire, in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. May God add his blessing to our hearing of his word this morning. You may be seated. Some in the congregation today may be familiar with the term premillennialism. Premillennialism is basically a viewpoint on how we interpret the events of the end times. Revelation 20 This vision that God gave to John is very descriptive of how the events of salvation and the events of the world, the events of creation are unfolding and they come to a culmination. And then what will happen at that culmination? The period of time we refer to as the end times. Now, because much of what we find described in the Bible about the end times is, is symbolic and it is filled with great mystery, there are many different perspectives and many different ways to interpret what we read in the Bible about the end times. And many theologians have very hard and fast opinions about how uh, the last days will unfold on the earth. Because there is such mystery involved, I'm not one who has taken uh, too hard and fast a position on those things. I think God has it figured out and things will unfold the way God wants them to. However, the interpretation of this passage as being a literal description of what will happen in the final age of the world, I believe is the right interpretation. Uh, I believe that the order of events that we find described here in Revelation 20 will literally unfold over the course of human history, salvation history, over the course of time. It's as important as it is for us to struggle and strive to understand what God is doing in our world and, and how ultimately things will come to an end. There's a much more important issue being addressed not only in these verses from Revelation 20, but in the entirety of the book of Revelation and in the entirety of our Bibles. Because what is being addressed ultimately in Scripture is our greatest problem and God's solution to it. If I were to ask you this morning, What, in your opinion, is the world's greatest problem? How would you respond? Since the beginning of March, I've traveled twice to the borders of Ukraine, Poland, Romania, surrounding countries. I went five days after the war began in March with Russia's invasion uh, to meet with partners that we have in the area and missionaries who've been working for decades, your missionaries, in that part of the world thought it was important to be there because uh, this had all the appearances of a human travesty that was about to unfold. And I know that 
Southern Baptists love the hurting, and we wanted to help. So meeting with pastors of churches that were literally uh, just a, a couple of kilometers on the Polish side of that Ukrainian border or the Romanian side of that Ukrainian border, meeting with Ukrainian Baptist pastors who uh, had come to the borders to, to explain to us what was unfolding and what the needs were and how we could potentially help. My heart was moved with great compassion, particularly standing at those border checkpoints and watching busloads full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in just a few hours of time mostly women and children, fleeing the war. On one of those trips in Romania, I met with a young lady in the basement of a church. That church had been, uh, it had been transformed into a refugee shelter for war refugees. This young mother and her daughter and her mother, so we had three generations of ladies here, uh, sleeping on cots in the fellowship hall of the church, totally dependent upon the generosity of Southern Baptists and of that little church and that pastor and that church family to care for them. Through an interpreter, I asked her uh, about her journey out of Ukraine. She explained that when the bombs began to drop on her city in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, she and her mother and daughter fled to a nearby city where they were not suffering through the bombings. The men stayed to fight. All the women and children had fled. She said, we wandered into the city with no one to help us, and, and we came upon a Baptist church, and they were offering refuge, meals, and a place to sleep. She said, we stayed there for a few weeks, enjoying the hospitality of those Baptists. And then the bombs began to drop on that city. And she said, that's when we knew we had to flee the country. So we came to the border checkpoint, which was just literally a couple of kilometers, a couple of miles uh, from, from the church where she was now living. And she says, we came through, there was a man standing there who asked if we needed help. She said, we needed help. We had nothing he introduced himself as a pastor of a Baptist church. And she said, I thought to myself, well, the Baptists have been so good to us in Ukraine. Maybe they will help us here. And she said, we got into the car with him and we began to drive away. And then it occurred to me, I just walked into a foreign country, got into a car with a stranger. I have no idea what he has planned for me, my mother, and my little girl. She said, I was so relieved when we pulled into the parking lot of the church in just five minutes' time. And she said, this is where we've been now for weeks. We have nowhere to go. We have no resources. She said, but here's what I want you to know. We have been loved here. And we have been cared for here. And they have also shared with us about Jesus. And she said, as I began to listen to what they were saying about Jesus, about the gospel, about sin and salvation, it occurred to me that I had lived my entire life lost and not even knowing it. And she said, if there's anything good that's come from this war, it's come 
from me being here in the basement of this church and hearing the gospel and giving my life to Jesus. She said, the pastor baptized me. She said, they've offered to send us to another place, but they're discipling me here. And she began to pull out from under the pillow of her little cot all sorts of materials that they were walking her through as a new believer. Church, you may not even realize you were there helping her. The generous gifts of Southern Baptists bought those cots, provide the meals, help that church do what they're doing. Of course, the war continues to unfold. There are more than 6 million who have fled Ukraine, another 6 million who are internally displaced. We're seeing the impact in the global economy of that war. If you were to ask what's one of the greatest problems in the world today, for many people, that would be chief on your mind. But is it the greatest problem? Today is Global Hunger Sunday in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the day we set aside each year. Uh, to emphasize the needs of hungry people around the world and to give in that emphasis an opportunity for Southern Baptists to make a donation to help provide food. Because of the war in Ukraine and so many other things are going on in the world, there are more people today on the verge of starvation than any time in the world's history. There are 345 million people. While there are 2 billion who face the struggle of finding meals every day, there are 345 million on the verge of starvation. Millions will die. Southern Baptists will give millions. We've taken literally tons of food into Ukraine. We've delivered tons of food in many other places of the world where, where people are literally starving to death. Thank you for your generosity. And yet we know that millions will die. Such an incredible travesty unfolding around the world. Global hunger, whether we recognize or not, is one of the world's biggest problems. But is it the greatest problem in the world? If not, what would it be in your estimation? Would it be human trafficking Would it be the refugee crisis, now over 100 million displaced around the world? What would be the world's greatest problem? I believe the world's greatest problem can be stated in a single word. And that word is lostness. Spiritual lostness is a greater problem than the war in Ukraine. It's a greater problem than global hunger. It's a greater problem than a refugee crisis, human trafficking. You fill in any word or tragedy that's unfolding around the world today. And I believe when you compare that to spiritual lostness, Whatever tragedy is unfolding pales in comparison. Why do I say that? Why do I think that lostness, spiritual lostness is the greatest problem in the world? Because this is a universal problem. And it is an eternal problem. Every other problem in your life ends when you die. You're not hungry after you die. You don't take chemotherapy after you die. You don't struggle with addiction after you die. You don't grieve a loved one you've lost after you die. Dysfunction in your family and broken relationships that capture so much of a time and energy and create so much pain for so many of us 
here in this life, that's not a problem when you die. But there is a problem that is eternal and universal. It's the problem of being lost. This passage of Scripture, I mean, it so poignantly describes not just in terms of the end of times and those who are thrown into the lake of fire, it poignantly describes what is hanging in the balance for every human being who is still alive today. Heaven or hell, there is no greater problem in our world. And that becomes clear as we read Scripture and as we see John's vision of what is happening not just in the end times, but know that this is the end that awaits all. Either your name is in the book of life or it is not. Revelation 20:15 puts it in those very certain terms. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 10 indicates in this passage that the lake of fire and sulfur is where Satan, that ancient serpent, and where the beast and the false prophet were thrown. In that same verse, the Word of God declares the lake of fire is where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Forever and ever. It's an eternal problem. John is referencing hell be separated from God because of our sin is to bear the wages of sin, the consequences of sin. It's not only physical and spiritual death, it's eternity separated from God. It's a problem not only universal to every human being because, as the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a problem which no other problem even begins to rival. John refers to Satan, our enemy, as that ancient serpent. I guess there's a sense in which we could say that all of humanity, individually and collectively, has been snake bit. We all have this problem. I've been snake bit. I mean, literally snake bit. (laughs) It didn't happen too far from here either. It was between my seventh and eighth grade years of middle school had the opportunity to attend a uh, 4-H wildlife camp down around Milan, Tennessee. Anybody know where Milan is? Just south of here, not too far, down towards Memphis. Uh, it, it, it promised to be a great week, at least for a young boy, because it promised to be a week where you could spend your time learning about conservation and critters. And there were some events that were hyped as especially exciting, in my opinion. I was told that if I went to conservation camp, I would get to be a part of a beaver dissection. I thought that sounded cool. And I didn't know the beaver was going to be frozen, have to be thawed out in the bathtub in my cabin. That's the way it turned out. But uh, uh, I enjoyed seeing that little thing dissected. I was told that we would have a meal one night of rattlesnake. And I thought, that'd be cool. And we did. (laughs) But there were two things that made conservation camp put on by 4-H, the University of Tennessee and Tennessee Wildlife uh, Department Resources Agency, two things that made it legendary. One was the snake roundup. 
And the other thing was the snake bite club. For the snake roundup, they put all of the kids who were at camp that week on school buses and they took them out to a swampy area outside of Milan. And we spent the night wading through the swamp, chest deep, catching snakes. Now, can you imagine, remember, this is the 1980s. Can you imagine, you, you wouldn't even get the school bus pulled to a stop before lawsuits would be filed today. But, but back then, they literally took school bus loads full of kids out and dumped them in a swamp. We caught snake after snake. Had a great time, the snake roundup. The next day was like the climax of camp. They took all of the non-venomous snakes, the non-poisonous snakes, water snakes, they put them in a pillowcase and they carried them throughout the camp and gave every camper the opportunity to join the snake bite club. (laughs) You talk about peer pressure. (laughs) I'd already made my mind up before I ever showed up at conservation camp, I was going to join the snake bite club. And so they brought the pillowcase by my cabin and some of the other boys I poured out and and waited in line. Fairly simple process, really. I mean, stick your hand in the pillowcase and you're using inductee. But unfortunately for me, I don't know, maybe they were tired. They made too many stops at too many cabins, but I stuck my hand in the pillowcase and nothing happened. So I looked at the camp counselor. I said, what do I do now? He said, well, bring one out. Mind you, this was not church camp. Let's be clear. (laughs) I'm from the mountains of East Tennessee, but this was not church camp. I pulled the snake out. I'm sitting there holding it. He has no interest in me whatsoever. I said, well, what do I do now? He said, well, slap it. (laughs) And so I did. And it slapped me back (laughs) right there with a toothy slap. And that's how I joined the snake bite club. But the truth is, I'm a lifelong member of the Snakebite Club. Genesis 3.15 contains the words the Lord spoke in judgment upon the serpent and upon Adam and Eve. The serpent has slithered into the Garden of Eden, tempted Eve, tempted Adam, They both joined his club. They ate the forbidden fruit. They sinned against God. The Lord, in declaring his judgment that had been promised beforehand, stated this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Note, that the judgment that God declares upon the serpent was for the serpent. The judgment of God that God declares upon Adam and Eve was not just for Adam and Eve. It was also for their offspring. We refer to this as the fall of man where sin entered the world. And the scriptures teach us unequivocally the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin are felt by every human being. We are conceived in sin. We are born in sin. But the Bible also makes it clear what we know to be the case. We have chosen our own path of sin. 
Each of us, just like Adam and Eve, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've done things that are wrong. We can't simply look back to the first two human beings and blame them. For we are culpable not only for their sin, but for our own. We have willingly put our hand in the pillowcase, taken up the serpent, and been bitten. Adam and Eve's problem from that point on was their greatest problem. It's the problem of their separation from God, this broken relationship because of their sin. It was Cain's greatest problem because he was their son, but also because he sinned and killed his brother. This was the greatest problem of the world in Noah's day, and God judged the earth for that. You know the story. It was the greatest problem of the world in Jeremiah's day and Isaiah's day and Ezekiel's day. It has been the greatest problem of the world every day since the fall. But the truth is, it's a greater problem today than ever before because there are more people lost today than ever before. In fact, more people will die lost today than ever before. Each year, my research team at the IMB provides me with a a data point. It's based upon three factors. Uh, They track population growth around the world. They track the population death rate and then religious affiliation. What religion do people claim is their religion? Combining those three factors in a formula, they tell me how many people, it's an estimate, how many people die lost around the world every single day. That number is larger this year than it's ever been. 157,690 people die lost every single day. If you ask me why First Baptist Church exists, I'll tell you this, it's to address that problem. First Baptist Church is still here on earth with a mission and is to take the gospel to the nations, particularly those who have not heard, but also everyone in your community and everyone in your area of influence to share the good news with them because you see, God has solved the world's greatest problem. He has given us the gospel. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. We, we, we know that the problem started in Genesis 3, but it's in John 3 where Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. You remember John 3, 16. That's a part of the interaction that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Nicodemus wants to know what, what, uh, what is going on here. How can a man be, be born again? How can I have this problem solved? It's interesting that Jesus references a snake story. He references a story of Moses in the wilderness, when the children of Israel rebelled against God and God sent serpents, the book of Numbers describes that God sent serpents into the camp and they bit the people. It was their judgment, God's judgment upon them for their sin. But the people repented and they cried out to God and Moses cried out to God on their behalf, Lord, have mercy on us. And the Lord said, here's what we'll do. Moses, take a bronze serpent, fashion it, put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten by one of these serpents, if they look at that bronze serpent, They'll live even if they've been snake bit. Jesus references that. John chapter 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. God has provided healing, He has provided an escape of judgment, He has provided salvation. 
As the Son of Man was lifted up, Jesus died on the cross to pay the price of your sin and the sin of the world. And any who would put their trust in Him, what we call faith, any who would turn from their sin and turn to Him, we call that repentance. Any who would confess Him as Lord because He is. The Bible says you'll be forgiven. You'll be adopted in the Father's family. Hell, the lake of fire is not your destination. You'll be welcomed into heaven. Has God solved your greatest problem? Have you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior? If you have, then I trust there's joy in your heart today. Knowing that you have nothing to fear. There's love in your heart today for the one who loved you enough to die for you. There's hope in your heart today knowing that hell has no place for you. Heaven is your eternal home. And yet today there are millions, even billions around the world who know nothing of this good news. Ask me why the IMB exists. I'll tell you, the IMB exists to address the world's greatest problem. Lostness. We know the solution. And God is sending missionaries to share that good news. We're sending, I've talked to several teenagers last night and even this morning who want to know, is there a place where I could serve uh, for a short-term mission trip with the IMB? Yes. Students from college, we'll send you for a semester or a summer, a gap year. Uh, Young people who are under the age of 30, married or single, no kids yet, two years, fully funded through our journeyman program. You can go serve on an IMB team. The IMB is sending missionaries today with the help of First Baptist Church. We're sending career missionaries all over the world. We're sending retirees. It doesn't matter what you've done. You've been in the military, you're retired now, we can use that. You've been a retired, you're a retired pastor, we can use that. You're a retired doctor or nurse or school teacher or a police officer, farmer, Hey, it doesn't matter what you've done. We can use it somewhere. Hundred fifty-seven thousand six hundred and ninety will die lost today. There's no greater problem in the world. God has left us here with a solution. We're here to address the world's greatest problem. Let's get at it. Would you stand with me this morning? Today, if you've come to realize that the world's greatest problem is also your problem because you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you've, you've yet to follow him with your life, put your trust in him and what he did on the cross. You've not confessed him as the Lord of your life. The consequences of not getting that fixed. Oh, there's no greater problem in your life. No important issue right now than you address that problem. The Lord Jesus loves you. He died for you. He's the ultimate problem solver. Put your trust in him today and you can have the assurance that that problem is solved. If that's the commitment you're ready to make with your life, we want to be able to celebrate it with you. I mean, it's a great day. It's the day of salvation. Pastor Ronnie, other pastors, be here at the front. Come, share that news with them. Maybe you have questions. What does that mean? What would that take for me? They can answer those questions. Or maybe that problem has been solved and your heart is burdened 
by the problem of others in the world, knowing the greatest problem is lostness. God has put the nations on your heart. You've sensed a stirring in your life. You're willing to go. If the Lord would clearly lead you in that direction, I would encourage you today to come forward. I'd love to talk with you about ways to serve through the IMB or love just to, in conversation with you, help, help you discern and pray with you about what God is doing. Is God calling you? The need's greater today than it's ever been, but the opportunity is also greater. There's an opportunity for you to go. Come. As the Lord is leading you, you come.